Dear God, I just pray that you may open up our hearts and our ears to receive your words. May it challenge us. May it comfort us. Lord, I pray that you may mold and shape us to the people that you want us to be. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. May your gospel be preached and may your Holy Spirit stir in our hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm really honored to be um, preaching to you guys and being here. I mean, um, I've always been a fan of Pastor Andrew. I I met him first when I was in seminary. When we were both in seminary, um, both two young guys that didn't know what we were doing, we're both youth pastors in in kind of New Jersey, and we're just trying to figure, figure things out. And I mean, just a genuine guy that really loves the Lord that, you know, I've been learning so much from him, just just watching him from the sidelines. But man, you guys are really blessed um, to have him. But, you know, when I was reading over um, this passage or this Psalm 51 and as I was analyzing it and and, and seeing how I was going to preach on it, I realized that this chapter can be broke down in so many different ways to display many different parts, uh, the truth, different points from it. But I realized you can't do that all in one sermon. So I'm going to be chunking things together. For some of you guys that like jumping deep into the word, you're going to be like, oh, he missed out on this one or or that one. I just want to let you guys know I am chunking, chunking a few things together. Um, So please bear with me. The reason why I preached on this passage is our church is kind of in a series called Loving God and Loving Others. And I was was excited to see how that concept was written inside the confession today, um, talking about um, loving God with all of our hearts, our, our minds, our souls, and all of our strength. And how that kind of flows into our love for our neighbors, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And as, as we're analyzing this whole idea of loving God, we're going through each of them, you know, like loving God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. So I started to think, all right, how do we love God with our hearts? How do we love God with our hearts? I mean, how do we actually do this? I mean, let me ask you guys a question. What do you think is the single most important com- component of a relationship that can last? The single most component. I mean, I think we can think of a lot of things. People usually say stuff like, hey, it's communication. You know, we got to talk honestly. It's, it's about sacrifice. It's about being considerate or being faithful and a lot of other things. And I think we can all agree that those things are really important in maintaining a relationship. But I think there's a component that is often overlooked. What happens when something fails? What happens when someone is not faithful or isn't honest or acts selfishly? Or keep secrets. I mean, what do you do then? Does the relationship just end right there? Or is there a next step that you take? I mean, I think these days I'm I'm starting to learn more about marriage. It's only been about four years since I've been married. But uh, I'm realizing how utterly sinful I am. I mean, I think that's what marriage is, right? You just realize how ugly you are. And then then you, you work on getting sanctified. But this component is overlooked time and time again. And thinking about what it means to love God with all of our hearts, I began to search for what the heart that God seeks for the most. And I came upon this passage that talks about a broken and contrite heart. And it's talking about a guy named David, his confession, his prayers. So I started to reflect on David a little bit more. Today's Bible text is actually King's David, King David's response to a failure that he had not only as king but as a man. A sin that he committed, and now he's praying to God for repentance and asking for forgiveness. 
I mean, King David is the second king of Israel who's the most famous for a lot of great things, things that he's done. I mean, we probably remember him killing Goliath with the stone, and, and we, we know that he won battle after battle after battle, and we're like, oh, he's a man after God's heart. Yeah, did you guys know that he's known to have committed the biggest sins as well? And I'm always shocked to hear how beloved David is in God's eyes. I mean, God chooses David's bloodline to last forever. He chooses David's bloodline for Jesus Christ to come out of. But why David? I mean, check this out. I think it helps to compare David to a guy named Saul to understand what, why God loves him so much. Saul was actually the first king of Israel that was taken down from kingship. And then David was put in his place. But I was, when I was looking at their history, I was like, yo, Saul, what he did wasn't that bad. And David, I'm like, you're looking at what he did. You're like, what's going on? Let's look at this for a second. If you guys don't know much about Saul, this is the sin that he commits that, that makes God reconsider him as king. You can read about this in more detail in 1 Samuel 15. After winning a battle against an enemy nation... Samuel tells Saul that, hey, destroy everything. Don't keep anything. Don't keep any of the spoils. Don't keep any of the women. Destroy everything. Don't keep anything after you win. Yet Saul, after winning the battle, he has his eyes on the goods and decides that it was better to take it all. I mean, maybe as king, he saw that it was the wiser choice. I mean, if you, if you just beat an enemy, I mean, it, takes, it, take, it makes sense to keep the resources so that the nation can benefit Yet Saul, the prophet at the time, confronts Saul and says, why did you disobey? Why did you not listen to God? And listen to Paul's, um, Saul's response. He goes like this. The people took it so that they can sacrifice it all to God. It was for you, God. Why waste it when it can be used for your glory? And this is the sin that brought Saul down. I mean, it seems pretty innocent, right? I mean, I think I'd make this excuse all the time. Like, God, is for you. You're not going to make anything holy. You can, do, you can do a lot of bad things and, and mark it as holy. But something, you can, something that you can't look past is, I mean, this is, this is all sin. But if we look at David's sin, his failure is so much worse. And you can read more about this in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. And this is what happens that leads him into the prayer that we see today. One day when David was supposed to go out on battle, he decides to take some time off and leaves his army to his commander, Joab. And as he is resting and hanging out on the roof, what does he do? You guys all know the story, right? At the corner of his eye, he sees a, he sees a woman. And usually, usually when guys like, look, we, it catches our eyes. But, you know, sometimes we turn like this and start staring and, and say, oh, I shouldn't do this. But we keep staring. And this is what David does. His hormones take over. And what does he do? It's like, oh, my gosh, I got to have this woman. So he gets one of his servants, servants, tells him to go get that woman. He realizes that this woman is married, yet he doesn't care. He does his deed. He gets the woman pregnant. And this is Bathsheba. Now David's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? How do I cover this up? So what does David do? He calls Uriah, which is the husband of this woman, and says to come back home. He was a soldier in the army, one of David's really close men. He tells him to come home. and It's like, hey, spend some time with your wife. Have a good time, and hopefully they can think that the baby's his. But of course, Uriah's uh, the, the goody two-shoe guy. is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I, I have to be with my men. I got to fight. I'm not going to rest while my men is out on battle. So David goes to plan B, tells his commander, yo, send them out to the, the front lines. When the battle is fierce, take your men out. So he dies. David went from abusing his power by not going to fight 
to basically raping a woman, then plotting murder to get away with it and bringing others on as accomplice to murder. Yet, why does God call David a man after God's own heart? There is something that God looks at more than we can see. In fact, that's what he says when he first picked David as king. First Samuel 16 to 7 says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is where we find ourselves today. The reason why, the reason why God adores David so much, despite his big sins, is shown in our prayer in Psalm 51. And I think we can discover what that heart looks like when we read verses 16 and 17, which I think basically summarizes that whole chapter. It goes like this. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken, broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You know what he's saying? More than doing something good to make it up to God, more than offering sacrifices and praise, more than doing all the right things, God wants our hearts in the right place. And what pleases him more than anything else is a broken and contrite heart before him, a heart that is humble enough to admit wrongs, And to be in a place where you can ask for forgiveness and grow to change. You know, the truth is, the truth is so important that this truth is so important that we have to begin here. This is where it all starts. Our faith is built on this notion of a broken and contrite heart. Because without this, we could never build our love for God, never even see the gospel. So what is a broken and contrite heart? We're going to be examining our text today and see that there are characteristics of a broken and contrite heart. And we're going to go over four points today. And I believe that they are fundamental not only to our Christian faith, but also with our relationships with one another. Number one, a broken and a contrite heart is quick to admit wrongs. Sounds pretty simple, right? You're like, I knew this. But one of the main reasons why God says that David is a man after God's own heart is because David is quick, quick to repent and listen to God. He's quick to recognize his failures and turn to him. What happens is the prophet Nathan comes to David and reveals his sin. God uses Nathan to reveal it in such a way, yet effective way, in a yet thoughtful way. In 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, this is what Nathan says. I'm actually going to be reading from the, the, what do you call it, the Message Bible. And you guys are probably like, aw. But it, it's, it breaks it down pretty simply. Let me read this to you guys. There were two men in the same city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor man had nothing but one little lamb, little female lamb, which he had brought and raised. It grew up, grew up with him and his children as a member of the family. It ate off his plate and drank from his cup and slept on his bed. It was like a daughter to him. So Nathan continues as he's telling the story. One day a traveler dropped on in the rich man, and he was too stingy to take an animal from his own flock or herds to make a meal for his visitor. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal to set it before his guests. After David heard this, David explodes and says this, as surely as God lives, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must be, he must repay the lamb four times for his crime and his stinginess. And then Nathan, I mean, this is talk about a slap in the face. Nathan turns to him and says, yo, that's you. That's you. And David doesn't say anything. He doesn't give a, a response. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say things like, oh, it's not because it is this. 
All he says is, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he goes and says this prayer that we read today. Have mercy on me, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified and blame, justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As soon as he hears his sin being revealed, he's quick to acknowledge his wrongs directly. He's quick to admit his failures. In fact, in 2 Samuel, we see that he went out and fasted and laid on the ground all night, all night. He is an act of showing his remorse for his sins. But guys, let me ask you, isn't it true? Even in our own relationships with each other, when someone hurts us, when someone does us wrong, when someone doesn't keep their promise, yes, we're mad at the deed done. But aren't we more mad, more mad at the attitude that comes after that? Think about it. We're more mad at the attitude that comes. Let me, let me give you guys two scenarios, two scenarios. Your husband was lying about where he was the day before. He acted like he just went to work. He grabbed his bags and, and just went, um, stayed out all, all night, kind of came home late. And, and, you know, you're like, hey, honey, why'd you, why are you late? He's like, oh, you know, it was a rough day at work and, and, and stuff like that. And, and he comes and he, he's chilling and he's just watching TV while, while you were, you know, watching the kids all day and cleaning the house or something. And then all of a sudden, that you, you take his pants and you're, 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 you know, you're, you're about to put it away, and then you pull out of his pocket a receipt that says, so-and-so country club, and, and like it had like a time stamp marked on it or, or, or a thing, and you found out he was golfing all day with his friends. And then this guy turns to you, and you, you go to him, you confront this guy, you're like, what is this? And the husband looks at her and be like, come on. I can't take one break. Come on, I work every day. I provide for the family. I do everything. I can't just take one break. I mean, granted, I mean, it's justified kind of. I mean, it's understandable. But his attitude was unrepentant. Therefore, there's no remorse. But let's look at a second scenario. Say he did something with bigger consequence and it affected the family far more. Like this guy, he says, hey, I'm going to go to Las Vegas with my friends. I'm going to be playing a little bit. I'll be back. I'll be gone for the weekend. So he goes to Vegas. He starts playing. He drinks a little bit, gets a little tipsy, plays some card games. He, he loses a big hand, but he keeps playing, and he loses a bigger hand, and he keeps playing, and he ends up going to the bank account, taking your savings out, your kid's tuition, and plays with that again. And after that, he wakes up in the morning a little bit hungover and realizes what he'd done, and he goes, oh, my gosh. What did I do? And he calls you up and says, honey, I am so sorry. I don't know what I did. I, I must be an idiot. Please forgive me. And he's going on and on. And just imagine that that heart was so genuine that he really, really did change. Now, granted, I guarantee the second scenario is a lot worse. You don't want that ever to happen. Like you lost your life savings and everything. The first scenario is probably better to live with. But I bet you, I bet you, that the person in the second scenario, although the situation is worse, that relationship would be better. A broken and contrite heart is so important for a loving relationship that if you lack it, a relationship will always be surface level. And it's the same way with our relationship with God. To God, it's not so much about the deed done in comparison to how the heart responds. 
Now, it's not to say that David didn't face his, his consequences. If you read his whole story, man, the end of his life, like, you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, wow, Lord, that was kind of harsh. And God disciplines and hammers down on him afterwards. But God never stops loving him. And God still respected and honored him to the point, to, to the point where Jesus Christ is actually brought out from his bloodline. We show our love to God with all of our hearts by being quick to admit our sins, to acknowledge that we are imperfect people that have, been, that have broken his heart by following our idols, that we cheat on God by placing things above him, yet we love God with all of our hearts by being honest and coming to him with our mistakes. And as humans, those that are made in the image of God, we also have the capacity to detect that, right? A broken and contrite heart. And this leads to the second point. A broken and contrite heart also, also is slow to blame and judge others. There's another characteristic that is so unavoidable to someone who has a broken and contrite heart. This is the slowness in judging others or placing blame on others. When we face trials or when, we, when someone points at a mistake, there's something that we tend to do. We point. This was the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve after they fall into sin and God points out their sin. What does, what does Adam do? He's like, yo, it's a woman. And the woman's like, oh, no, it's, it's a serpent. And the serpent's just like, oh, yeah, it's me. There's this whole blame game going on. You know, sometimes I feel like we live a life as if we're filming, filming a movie, right? We, have you guys ever thought of this? Like you're filming a, filming a movie and everything kind of revolves around you. But anyways, like you're filming a movie and, and you're watching everything, you know, like all the circumstances going on and, and, and you see, you know, the situations, you see the people walking around and you can see everybody else. But the only problem is when you're filming the movie, you cannot see yourself. You cannot see yourself. And I find myself doing this all the time, even with my wife. I'm so good at casting blame. Like, my wife always tells me, like, man, like, you're so good with your words that I hate you, you know? Like, you, you know how to twist things around. You know, she'll yell at me, like, you, you know, like, Paul, why didn't you clean the house? And I yell back because I have no energy because you didn't feed me. And, you know, and like, I make excuses all the time. But this was a great mistake of Saul. In contrast to David, when the prophet Samuel came to Saul to reveal his sins against God for not destroying everything, there's two things that he does. One, he blames the people. It's your people. He blames his soldiers, saying it's, it's, it's them who made the decision. They wanted to do it. God, it's them. Not only does he, not only does he what, point to another person, he also gives an excuse. God, we did it for you. I mean, Really? I mean, even us, I think we're, we're bright enough to, to smell BS when we smell it. Like, God's probably like, like, come on. But those who have a heart that longs after God are not quick to blame others or their circumstances. I mean, we do this all the time. God, it's not my fault. It's his fault. If we would have been nicer or more caring, then I wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't have done what I've done. I would be more loving only. Only if they are more like this. The reason why I lost my temper is their fault. I mean, don't we always make excuses? I'm, li- I'm not like this because she's not like that. I'm not being the husband I ought to be because she's not being the wife she ought to be. And this blaming, blaming goes on and on. And this blaming for, for our own flaws quickly becomes a character that we have where we begin to judge everyone around us everyone for the flaws that that they may have. And I mean, this is this constant way of thinking, right? 
constant way of pointing becomes a character in our life. A judging heart automatically assumes that the person that you are judging, that you are better than the person you're judging. I mean, when you call somebody stupid, right, you're assuming you're smarter. Or when you call someone ugly, you're you're thinking you're a lot hotter. Same goes for other judges. When you judge another person for their character, you're assuming that your character is better. But let me tell you guys something, something that I've been learning more and more. True spiritual maturity starts here. It's not about achieving perfection. Because trust me, when we achieve perfection, it's going to quickly turn to pride. But true spiritual maturity is the quickness, quickness of seeing your own sins, admitting them, and receiving grace for them. And then you're less likely to judge others because you know that you're not different from them. They need grace too. Even David was able to admit that from birth he was a sinner. And this is a great Christian truth that we are totally deprived, meaning that no one is free from sin and we are all capable of doing the worst crimes. And David acknowledging his nature in front of God, therefore, is broken and contrite and is slow to judge others. Let me read to you guys some famous words. And I bet you guys, some of you guys might have this memorized because you, you know, I, I grew up saying this to my mom all the time. Like, let me read this to you guys and you guys will know. This is Matthew chapter 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log that is in your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your own brother's eye. You know, I can't can't imagine, you know, the day my, my, my daughter says this to me, oh my gosh. But I think this is a general good rule of thumb. Before you place criticism and judgment on another We're called to search our own hearts because I believe many times, even when I look at myself, many times, every time I got something in my head, it's usually a reflection of my own heart. We come with our own prejudices and judgments rather than it being the fault of the other. It was us. And Jesus is saying this. Our sins must always seem as if they are big as logs. If you think about this in a physical sense, this passage is saying that that speck in your eye is so close to you, so at home with you, so in front of your eyes and your focus that that's all you see is a big log because it's so close. This is the idea of having a broken and contrite heart and admitting your flaws and coming before him, being slow to judge another person because you see your own flaws. A third point, a broken and contrite heart is open to change and is teachable. You know, Psalm 51, 6 through 11 kind of talks about this, and it kind of naturally points to everything. But let me read, to, read you guys this. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Look at these words. Teach me. Purge me. Let me hear. Let me listen. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. And he even mentions the Holy Spirit. And what we know about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is the person that reveals our sins, convicts our hearts, and opens up our eyes to the truths of God. Another characteristic of a broken and contrite heart is a heart ready to listen, ready to change, ready to be taught. You know, sometimes it's easy. Maybe we can admit our flaws. Maybe we can get to that point. But how hard is it to listen to someone's rebuke and actually change from it? 
It's really, really hard. How hard is it to respond to it by not only listening but accepting it for change? You know, these days I feel like our world is so defensive. We're so defensive. I mean, we get so offended about everything. We take things on an emotional level when everything's a personal attack. Why are you attacking me? Yes, we have to be we have to be open to be offended and not get defensive or we'll never grow. That's a teachable heart. Most practically is putting down your pride and humbly listening and not be offended, but being open. David could have easily killed Nathan and ignore Norm as a prophet. I mean, Nathan works for him. He could have been like, yo, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to close that and push them out very easily. But instead he listens. He could have been offended, but he's not. He's not defensive. He accepts it. You know, in Los Angeles, um, I, I served there for about five years and I, I served at a pretty, like, kind of like a mega church, Korean church model. And, and you know, our, our, you know the, the amount of different people that come in to serve those types of churches, it's like a revolving door. I mean, pastors go in and out, in and out, in and out. So, I mean, like, if you lasted, like, two years, they give you, like, stripes for, 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 you know, for being able to last. And I, I stayed there for five years. Like, yo, I had, like, general stripes on my, on my arm. Like, it was, but it's like that. But being there for five years, I met so many different types of pastors going in and out, in and out. And there's one particular guy that I had this opportunity to work with with my time there, but it was simply a nightmare. You know, talk, you know when, I, when, I was, when I'm actually reading this, talk about, talk about like pointing fingers at somebody else and not yourself, right? I'm, I'm committing sins right now. But it was a nightmare, not because he was a bad person, super nice person, not because, not because like he did anything wrong or, that, or because he wasn't skilled. But it was because this person was never able to receive any criticism without being a personal attack on him. This person was a decent pastor. They were very good and friendly. But no one, no one was able to correct them. And this led to someone. They began to be surrounded by just a bunch of people that we call yes men. You know, like, oh, yes, pastor. And eventually, this guy couldn't last one year at her church and he left. Because he couldn't grow and learn. You know, a lot of times we think that being a confident leader is, is not listening and, and moving forward. But the truth is, true confidence comes from a heart that's willing to listen, even taking advice from a child. But this attitude pours into so many different areas of life. So many different areas. I've seen people be cut off from the idea of listening to others. And, and they read this, right? And they, they think that being a, having a broken and contrite heart, uh, if they are sad or depressed or, or just broken, and they say, oh, I'm broken in need of God, and I need people around me to care for me because I'm broken. And they love reading passages like, blessed is the poor in spirit, and they think that's them. But guys, let me tell you guys, there's a fine line between the proud and the wounded. A lot of times the wounded are wounded because their pride is crushed. The same sin in different faces. But a broken heart is not one that is wounded in need. That's not what a broken and contrite heart is. A broken and contrite heart is the one that sees their own mistakes. They see their pride and they desire to learn and grow. They desire to be taught by God and others and are convicted to change. They stop pointing fingers to circumstances and people to blame. But they look and hear to the wise counsels to make improvements. My pastor in L.A., I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed to have worked under him because he drilled me on this so much. Like every pastoral meeting, open heart and teachable heart. And, but guys, it, that has been one of the biggest, biggest blessings in my life. And I pray that God may continually give me that type of heart. 
Because I believe that skills, skills, having skills, they come and go. But a person that's learning all the time, they are constantly growing. And I pray that this will be your prayer as well. I hope that God will send different Nathans into your life to speak into your life. I hope that God's word may be that voice that speaks into you, not being offended, but growing, growing and learning. God is seeking to mold and shape us with his words. And and he is seeking to convict our hearts with the Holy Spirit. May we not grieve that. And to love God with all of our hearts is to be completely teachable to his guidance. Last and not least, a broken and contrite heart has no other option than to seek the gospel. No other option than to seek the gospel. To love God with all of our hearts is to understand the gospel and to seek Christ with all of our hearts. To seek after God's help and salvation. Verses 12 to 15 says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What's important in having a broken and contrite heart is knowing that God is your only hope. Seeking the gospel is understanding that it is only God who can forgive and change you. And this is also the only way that we will not be crushed by our guilt either. This is the only way that we have joy in the midst of failure. Remember, the gospel is always in the process of restoring what is broken. Sinners returning to God. Blood guiltiness that is turned over. Mourning that turns into dancing. You know, what's amazing about this passage is, even though it's a repenting one, it's kind of dark. You know, he's like, oh, I suck in life. But it's an amazingly joyful one. Amazingly joyful one. It uncovers joy and renewal in the gospel. What's really interesting is that David, in this passage, seeks forgiveness to God and only God. And I, at first I was like, why only God? He's like, only against you have I sinned. And I was like, no, David, you, you messed up Bathsheba. You messed up Uriah. You messed with your nation. You made, you made Joab your commander, a, a, a person of murder. And I'm like, why doesn't David go and seek forgiveness from them? And then I realized something. There's something deep here. David seeks the gospel and that he realizes that it's not just about breaking rules, but it is his heart that was broken away from God. Lord, it's because of my heart was not in the right place with you that I've sinned. Only against you have I sinned. This is seeing the sin underneath the sin. You know, John Piper points to this aspect of David's prayer. He says this, why isn't he crying out for sexual restraint? Why isn't he praying for men to hold him accountable? Why isn't he praying for protected eyes and sex-free thoughts? The reason is he knows that sexual sin is a symptom, not the disease. People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. Their spirits are not steadfast and firm and established. They waver. They are enticed and they give way because God does not have a place in our feelings and thoughts that he should have. I mean, isn't this true? More than the lies itself, the lies come from a misplaced trust. Lies come from a broken relationship that lost its joy. And this is what the gospel mends. It fixes our relationship with God first. Sin on the surface level are bad things that we do, but sin at the root level is when we place other things above God and we sin in order to get them. And our hearts truly change for God when we constantly remind ourselves for God's love for us. 
and our love for him. Not just looking at the actions and its consequences, but looking at the forgotten love that should be there. And that's what's going to change our hearts and our relationship. Not just talking about physical sins, but focusing back on our growing need for love. Even David, this was not a one-moment thing. One scholar was talking about it, that David probably fell away a long time ago. After he won Goliath, after he won battle after battle, after he had everything in his hands, after he was able to bring a nation together and unified, his heart probably fled, which led him to onto the roof saying, I don't need to fight anymore. I don't need to desperately come after God. I got it all down. He drifted from his hunger and needs from God. And then the sins came in. I think David, when, reading, when writing the Psalms, he recognizes that his adultery with Bathsheba was not the main focus, but it was his adultery against God. He didn't recognize God's power and love and thought pleasure in other things. You know, maybe a lot of our own sins and even against others are there because we have forgotten this relationship with God. When our relationship with God is mended, that often flows into our relationship with others. You know, when we have joy in Christ, joy flows. When we have love in Christ, love flows. When we have forgiveness in Christ, forgiveness flows. May we return to God's love for us and recognize our forgiveness in him. And may we ask God to help us love him with all of our hearts, having a broken and contrite heart. And may joy, peace, and harmony flow into your relationships in your life. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much just for being a God that is real with us, for being a God that looks into our hearts, for being a God, O Lord, that accepts our response of a broken and contrite heart when we realize, O Lord, that it is only your grace that saves us. Dear God, I just pray that you may be with each person in this room, O Lord. May you be with the relationships that they're in. May you be with the marriages in this room, O Lord, those that may be even struggling. Dear God, I pray that your love may flow into their lives, O Lord. And I pray that each and every one of us may have broken and contrite hearts, O Lord, as we stand before you and before men, O Lord. And I pray, O Lord, that your gospel may be real in our hearts, real in our hearts, O Lord. That our relationship with you, O Lord, will not just be this idea or concept in our brain, but Lord, may that relationship truly flow into the way we live in this world and the way we love others. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give the benediction, God's blessing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that enables us to love God and love our neighbors be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.